Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's guest is uh, Professor Michael Fraser, otherwise known as my dad. And I'm in Sydney at the moment for the Sydney Comedy Festival. My last show is tonight, so uh, if you're getting this now, you will have missed it, but I'm sure it was lovely. I'll be in Perth next week and then in Edinburgh in August, so there are still chances if you're in either of those places to see the show. Uh, thank you everybody who's been uh, contributing to my Patreon, people who've signed up to download The Resistance. Thank you. It's a really wonderful thing. Remember, if you only signed up for the $5 a month in order to get The Resistance, uh, remember to reduce your uh, pledge at the end of the month and, and take it down to something you're more willing to sustain because I do not want to rob you, uh, put it in your calendar or whatever to unsubscribe at that point but of course there's still my blogs going out and and my posts are occasionally one dollar so you don't need to subscribe for more than that if you don't want to Uh, there'll be video footage coming out in the next couple of months um, and that I think will be available to the five dollar subscribers but I'll tell you more about that then Uh, hello how are you I'm well, Ali, <laughs> and I know you're well. Uh, yes, we've we've been hanging out and going for swims, which is the lovely thing about Sydney. It was three degrees in Melbourne on Wednesday, apparently. I'm glad I missed that. Melbourne. What have you been interested in recently? I've been thinking about many things, including privacy. That's something that you do lectures on, or is it just something that you're interested in? I did give a, a, a talk about privacy a uh, long time ago and yes I do lecture on on online issues media issues including privacy what's your what's your thing on it I don't know enough about it at the moment I know it's an issue but well I think privacy is an issue uh, I think it's one of the most important concerns of our time and I think the way we resolve Privacy will go a long way to shaping our society in the 21st century. So what? why do you think it's an issue? What do you think is changing? Well, privacy is a human right. Mm-hmm. And it's an element of our humanity and our dignity as as human beings. I think it's a a requisite for freedom of expression because you need to have privacy to work out what you think and and what you're going to say. And personally, privacy, solitude, when I choose, is among my most precious possessions. I think it's very important. But now, our privacy has become, our private information and our personal privacy has become a commodity that's exploited by the most rich and big companies in the history of the world. Yeah. And their value as corporations is based entirely on trading on our private information. Which is a bit worrying. Well, I think that it's important for us to understand the transaction uh, about our privacy and how it is being exploited so that we can protect ourselves and control our privacy in the way that we want and and make informed choices 
and give informed consent or withhold in our consent? I think it's, yeah, at the moment we are being, like the pri- privacy is sort of being gamified. You are rewarded with online points in the game of social media for sharing information about yourself. You get you get a, a, a sort of a, a f- not quite a fake coin because we value even we value in kind of our personal interactions with other people we value uh, approval at a sort of a, a incalculable in an incalculable way so it is it is worth something to have somebody say oh that's good or you know press like or there is some benefit to us but it's nowhere near the benefit that companies are which is you know financial benefit that companies are getting out of it so we're we're being paid in this sort of leprechaun's gold that doesn't last until the next day you need to do a new post and get more stuff but in the meanwhile all of that information about you is accruing in their bank vaults yes the the social media companies are offering wonderful services search engines are offering wonderful services Um, but these services are not really free Uh, we're paying with our private information and so we are communicating with others in new ways and and that's interesting but those communications are not really private we're being farmed for our data and I think when we give consent to our uh, private information being collected well we're thinking about that that information but I think we we need to have more of a conversation about this because it's not just this piece of information or that piece of information this information is being aggregated and so actually there are thousands of pieces of information that are held about us and not only that, but these thousands of pieces of, of information aggregated are then analysed. Algorithms are run over these data points to create a picture of us so that m- these corporations that buy and sell these profiles of mm. us to advertisers for tremendous amounts of money I- in total, they know more about us than we may know ourselves. They may know uh, our weak points. They may know very personal things about us. They may be able to predict our preferences, our likes, our dislikes, very sensitive information about our our health status, our personal status, our, our politics, our religion, all these things. And if you know that much by running algorithms over this data, then one is vulnerable to, th- to the people that hold that data and analyze it. We're vulnerable to being manipulated and exploited, not only commercially by being the target of, of ads, but also in other ways as well. Yeah, I think there's two sort of anecdotal things that, that seem important, like that feed into my idea of this. One is, they did that thing with the OkCupid uh, surveys. So OkCupid is an online dating site. It's free and they do surveys on it and you put in your information when you sign up to the site. And they did a, um, a data analysis 
And among the sort of counterintuitive or interesting points they pulled out was this seeming correlation with if you if you say that you like the taste of beer, you're more likely to sleep with someone on the first date. That is hugely private and hugely, like that's an intense thing to know about somebody and to know about a stranger. And then the other thing is, you know, you can, you can very easily analyse people's movements. So if you, if you search on Google Maps and you buy on your credit card a, a burger next door to an oncology testing centre and then you, you buy something at the pharmacy, that's information. That's really p- personal, private information that you are sick that if, uh, if an insurance company buys that, they, they know your status. You know, all of those things become really creepy very quickly. Yes, and as we enter now into not only a network communications environment, but also a network physical environment, the Internet of Things, not only can we be tracked online continually, but also in the physical world. And that can be aggregated as well. Our purchases with credit cards, our movement under CCTV, cameras, where we are when our mobile devices, communications devices uh, are pinging the the towers, uh, Ubers, every movement, uh, we are continually being watched, every action, every communication. And so this kind of surveillance society has an effect on us as, as humans. We behave differently when we're, when we're alone. When we're not being watched, we behave in a way when, when we have our privacy. And when we're watched or we think we might be being watched, we don't actually have to be watched. Panopticon. But just, just like in a panopticon or just like in... 1984 and Orwell's 84, the, the very possibility that at any moment we may be watched. Uh, that, that was John Stuart Mill's idea in the Panopticon, makes us control ourselves in ways that are not natural when one I- is in private. And so th- this is a constant kind of surveillance. Now, I think so far people have been willing in general to give up their private information and because of security fears many people feel comforted uh, and secure that there are CCTV cameras and demand even more CCTV cameras I, I've heard people say oh you know there, there are blank spots on the beach they ought to put them there as well and and it's hard to to know uh, you know what the trade-off in people's mind is because we we don't know the security uh, organizations, the police, uh, their their confidential information about the threats to us. But there's a general feeling of of threat, and people feel almost comforted by by being surveilled. Yeah, there's I think there's another element to that that's an almost almost mystical element that people feel it's nice to be watched. It's nice that somebody is is looking out for you in you know in an a generally atheist society it's nice that at least someone's paying attention that your stuff is on record that you're not you're not moving unseen through an uncaring universe 
and on the flip side of that coin, I think people feel like because everybody's being watched, uh, the data is so broad and massive that no one's paying attention to them individually. But that's an illusion because with these algorithms, they don't need to pay attention to you individually to exploit you individually. These, these, this surveillance society, this degree of scrutiny is really un unprecedented. And I it's introducing yeah, a new sort of society and perhaps a new kind of person. And I think this is what we need to reflect on. So these organizations are collecting data, corporations are collecting data. And, and we may feel that their management and their boards and their owners are benign. Uh, and we may feel that the government now that, that's surveilling on the with CCTV and so on is benign. But those things can change also. Yes. Um, whether they're benign or not now, they can also change in the future and they're still collecting that that data. Because the argument against a dictatorship is that if you cede these powers to one person, you have to be sure that the next person and the next person and the next person are also going to be as benevolent as this one person. Yes, if we think w they are. And what we've seen in effect is that these corporations um, are no more about us uh, than secret service and security organizations of the past ever knew about citizens or e even wrongdoers. So organizations like, say, the NKVD or the KGB, um, the Stasi, uh, the SS, depending on your politics, what you think about the CIA and, and the FBI, um, None of these organizations in their wildest dreams ever imagined that they could have so much information uh, about people, mm. despite all, all their efforts. And what has happened now is we see these, these corporations, like social media and, and search engines and so on, the government has in effect outsourced surveillance to them. And we see how uh, the National Security Agency in the United States has unlawfully tapped in to, to that data stream. Mm. Now, that in the United States uh, came to light and it's now subject to, to controls and, and uh, secret courts uh, which uh, restrict that, that access now. But we, we but Don't secret courts is never a good sentence. Well, it's not, but there are, there are security concerns. And we don't know how other governments are tapping into to social media. So, in, in effect, the trend has been towards governments outsourcing surveillance to these social media where we are willingly giving up this information and governments tapping in to the back end uh, of that data stream. Uh, not to mention that, that uh, for example, here in Australia, uh, now telcos are obliged to keep metadata about all our communications just in case mm. we fall under suspicion. And the government can now, without a warrant, without a, a warrant from a judge, government agencies and security and law enforcement can get access to that, that information.
Now, it, of course, we want uh, government law enforcement to be able to uh, tap uh, people's communications uh, if they reasonably suspect them of, of crimes or um, attacks on our security. But they have to get a warrant from a judge before doing that and uh, intercepting those communications and, and where it might be reasonable, the associates of, of the suspects. But they need a warrant, a specific warrant to do that. Now, all of us are potentially under this kind of surveillance in case uh, we come under some suspicion in the future. And that fundamentally alters the relationship of the citizen to the, to the state. Uh, you know when you see a film, you know who the baddies are. They're the ones who, who stop people in the street who, who are going about their business and say, your papers, please. Yeah. And, you know, if a policeman stops me in the street now and asks me to prove myself to him uh, and justify myself, well, if they've got a reasonable uh, suspicion, then they have the right to ask, and you're, you're required to answer. But just, just to gather that information for its own sake, well, I'm an Australian citizen. If a policeman asks me to identify myself, I might ask him the reason. If he doesn't have a reason, uh, you know, I might choose to tell him, or I might say, rack off, hairy legs. Yeah. Uh, because we have this kind of liberty or freedom. And, and uh, well, now, this metadata collection means that at all times our information about whom we're communicating with, what kind of activities we're doing online, is being gathered in case the government wants to look at, at that. And without even necessarily needing a good reason. And Well, they don't need a warrant, and I think that diminishes our standing as as citizens. Uh, and so I, I think that's a problem. The government justifies it by the need for law enforcement. So it's hard to assess how strong that argument is. Yes. Well, yeah, two, two things, I think. One is, one is, where is our willingness to die for our freedoms? Uh, it used to be one of the strongest arguments, you know, and now we don't even have proper rubbish bins on train stations because people are afraid of of things and that's strange to me and then the other thing is you mentioned dignity and how this is an attack on on our dignity as citizens as individual citizens and that's that's a v not i wouldn't say unpopular thing but it's it's seen as quite an outdated idea and i'm not sure if that's like causation or correlation, if people are pretending that dignity isn't important because they know that that's not something that they can have anymore, or if it's it's that people uh, stopped thinking it was important and therefore are willing to cede it. Well, it's dignity is is something that you make. It's inherent I in your activity as, as a human being, in, in your self-respect and your respect toward other people. People uh, don't have self-respect anymore. They have self-esteem. 
<laughs> well, self-respect is a different thing, and it, it's something that you, you generate for yourself by your own conduct uh, or not. Uh, so perhaps if you're willing uh, to give up your freedoms for uh, security, then uh, you might lose both your freedom and your security. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a worrying trend. Yes. The, the other way that, that by giving up so much private information to these services, as I say, they're wonderful services, so we're looking at how to manage these services. It's not that we're opposed to them but how we manage our privacy in, in these services is, of course, the problem of, of the filter bubble. So the, these, these algorithms see what we're looking for, see what we like, uh, draws a whole range of conclusions about that, and then presents to us what, what uh, the algorithm thinks we want to see. And so we're always getting things that we like in answer to our searches. Uh, in answer to, to our questions, and that reinforces our, our prejudices and our opinions. Yes. And so what we see is people floating off into the, di into the distance <laughs> because these they're, they're living in these filter bubbles, all, all of us, constantly having our preconceptions reinforced. And so I think I, I, I said to you earlier, um, people, I get these messages all the time from, from people with really bizarre conspiracy theories that people take, as a matter of fact, they take for granted, as if uh, everybody agrees on, uh, about these unreasonable, unscientific, unproven notions. And it's because everybody's agreeing with each other in these filter bubbles that, that people start to have these odd notions and it makes it harder f for people with different opinions to communicate properly with each other and come to sensible conclusions. Yeah, I, I, a good analogy I think is I talk to, I have, you know, one of the things that comedians do in Australia to make a living is uh, breakfast radio, many of them. And many of them complain that when they bring up references or they decide to talk about a particular topic, they'll be pinged by their producers that's not something our audience would recognize that's a reference that our audience wouldn't get that's an outdated reference or it's a niche reference and you need to talk to the mainstream culture you need to use reference points that people understand but some of the most interesting things i've ever come across have been in in art or texts or whatever where they'll refer to something that i don't know and then that opens up something new to me something that I hadn't heard of or hadn't experienced you you need to kind of step outside sometimes to to see interesting things I mean that's kind of the point of this podcast is to talk about difficult things things that are kind of off the table for normal discussion because people don't feel safe anymore talking outside of their Immediate, even, I mean, with identity politics, people don't feel comfortable talking outside their immediate experience, which is insane. The whole progress of human history has been towards imaginative empathy with other people, with the other, 
but even now to say the other is seen as a as an attack or an insult or a dis- diminishment of that other person's humanity uh, because you might only be um, engaging with them at least at first on a trivial level or tr- even a trivializing or diminishing level just only understanding one aspect or one facet of them and that's how you're approaching them to be told that you can't extend your imagination or your empathy in that direction because it's colonializing or oppressive in itself is really i i find that really worrying well that's a failure of imagination yeah there are higher goals than comfort yeah o- of just staying within your comfortable the quotidian environment. Uh, so, yes, to keep an open mind, uh, to learn things that you didn't know, to persuade and to be persuaded, uh, this is part of uh, living to the full. Otherwise, you just get stuck in a rut. Yeah, there's a, a really interesting article about what's called airspace, uh, which is these specifically in reference to these um, cafes, you know, where everywhere you go in the world now you can go to basically the same cafe. You know, it's a funky cafe, it's got reclaimed wood furniture, you can get the same menu, you can get good coffee, you can get Wi-Fi, you never... I mean, it's like a, 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 a a more tasteful McDonald's. You never have to... Uh, be uncomfortable you never have to be confronted with a menu item that you're not familiar with you you never have to be out of out of your zone even if you're in a different country in a different part of the world well which is a harmless thing enough but i think it's a manifestation of this partly a fear of being obtrusive or a fear of of uh, changing somebody else's mind or culture or ideas or values with your own polluting them in in a way i don't know what it is but it's it's a weird one well there's room for that there's room for comfort food there's room for the familiar there's room for routine but if you never come out from under the covers you'll just shrivel up yeah i mean i like routine i like you know i get a bubble tea before my show i like I like knowing where I can go to get the things that I like, but I also I, I, I seek out discomfort. You have to let go of things t- to be able to to get new things a- and and to grow a- as a person. You have to not hold on to to the familiar too tightly. Do you think that Australia is becoming more parochial or more more pa- do you think there's more patriotism now than there used to be or is this something that is I mean I I think maybe I have a false idea of it because I've been doing social media for a television show recently so I get a lot of this stuff where if somebody says something wrong immediately the there's accusations that they're a traitor. I don't think I ever heard the word traitor in the context of Australian culture until very recently. I, I don't know that it's any more so than before. Perhaps it takes a different shape. Uh, th- these things seem to go in, in cycles where 
suddenly people get afraid of uh, of foreigners of uh, new kinds of economies uh, and trade or uh, new kinds of immigrants um, and then we see the benefits of, of them and and we we change and develop as as a society and people you know, th I think there are many people who like to whip up fear um, of, of what is unusual in order to get power. And the, these people pop up from time to time in Australia as they do everywhere else. Wha I think the, the main thing now is th that there is globalization, and that's just a, f a fact because there's instantaneous international communications and uh, commercial uh, jet airliners, uh, passenger aircraft, and container ships. And so there is international trade and, and communications as a matter of, of fact. It's not the first time that's been going on for thousands of years, but it's just greater than before. And so that that is a challenge to, to people who like the familiar and now that we're living not not just in our own space, uh, national space, but inevitably we have to deal with international affairs more. And it, it, it takes an open mind and the ability to adapt. Um, and, you know, the ability to enjoy what's, what's different, not merely to tolerate those that are different but to enjoy people of different ethnicities and different nationalities and to cooperate with them and to learn from each other mm. yeah i have a, I have a joke about that in my show to uh, you'll see it tonight this is this is going to be an interesting night uh for me tcast listener because this show that i'm doing empire has my dad in it and uh, this is the first time that my dad is going to see the show uh, and it's, it's always, I mean, it's always been an interesting dynamic having you in my shows because I value your opinion and I know that what I do is sometimes, I mean, I think part of what I do is I'm trying to, in my comedy, address big issues and, and sometimes I'll use sort of crude analogies or quite low references the way I think about it is like a trampoline, right? If you're talking about a really lofty idea, you bounce it down to the lowest common denominator and then it springs back up so people are willing to come with you if you, for example, say... I mean, a, a very simple example, I've used it before in a show and I use it in the opening of this show, is I say, you know, you need to laugh as an audience because have you ever made out with someone who doesn't make any noise? And even that level of kind of of crudeness I feel vaguely uncomfortable talking like that in front of my dad and uh, I think it's going to be a really interesting show this one because you're in it well I'm in it as a as a character in yes in there there is show. a heavy level of fiction over the show for for a number of reasons but uh, nonetheless there there is there's a level of I don't know. Peop I mean, this is the thing. If I there's uh, there was a joke in the resistance where I just picked a man out of the audience, any man, 
basically. Any man of sort of above about 30 and below about 60 who was in the first couple of rows so that I could see him and the rest of the audience could see him. And every night I would pick a different man and uh, just bounce this joke off that because I needed to have a target for the joke. It's not about him per se, but I need to have an individual man for the joke. And every single time, almost every single time, about 90 to 95% of the time, that man would come up afterwards and sort of defend himself or, or make note of it or in a tweet would tweet about it and say, oh, you know, she called me an idiot or whatever it was. Uh, I think it's very hard in a performance to realise that, that, that you're not in it, that it's just, that it's just the performance. In general, I think that in m most comedy now and, and most people's expectation of, of uh, a great deal of comedy, the power of the comedy I is very crude. It's transgressive and it's designed to shock. Uh, and the laughter is the laughter of, of transgressing a taboo. N and there's no end to that because there's a sort of a, an inflation. Uh, as soon as that's done, you have to go further. It's very hard for comedians who do that kind of comedy uh, to know where the line is because they're constantly crossing the, the line and, and making people gasp wi yeah. with laughter. Well, I think that's a lazy way of getting a laugh. And uh, yes. I don't think that that's what you're trying it's to do. It's part of the toolkit, but it's not the one that I tend to use. It's, it's unimaginative, I, I think, and, and coarse. Well, well, specifically, I mean, in this trilogy, which Empire is the third in the trilogy, I remember talking to Henry, my brother, about Savage, where I used... I mean, this is the, this is the thing about telling stories, is that any story, by telling it, you're cutting out a lot because many, many, many things are true at any given time. You can't, in words, describe the whole of everything that's happening. You know, if I could, if I described this room, I would miss the texture of the air, I'd miss the smell, I would miss, you know, there's, just by describing something, you're, you're automatically pinpointing one thing in a three-dimensional, four-dimensional mass, and everything else falls away from the story. As soon as you're designating, it's not reality. Yes, exactly that. And so for in, in both Savage and Empire, uh, there are three scenes in which in, in Savage I describe mum and in this I describe you. And I think they're in I illuminating or, you know, they, they help to uh, describe or uh, create the character that I'm trying to use or d d describe the arc that I'm, you know, they're the points on which I pin the narrative. But I, I sort of try to keep them sparse. They're, they're for the audience to kind of feed their own ideas into. And then I'll play with that or I'll undermine that. But it is, yeah, it's it's so far from reality that I don't see it as a personal thing. I don't see it as, a, as an attempt even to, to uh, be accurate. It's, it's using a line to, 
tell the story that I want to tell, to make the point that I want to tell, to, to bring the audience to the insight that I want to give them. And so the whole of the reality falls away in favour of this one line through, in favour of the one kind of argument that I'm trying to make. And I forget sometimes that that can feel like uh, rendering the rest invisible or unimportant, which it's not. It's only unimportant to the story in that one hour. And I, I don't... I don't really know what the right answer is, but it's, and I'm not describing it particularly well, but it can feel, I think, like bullying. I think that's the point that Henry was trying to make, that by telling that story, the other stories are not being told or are being cast into the background or the, the fullness of reality is ignored. People are delicate. It's like we were saying about privacy. If you respect yourself, then you'll respect other people and you'll be sensitive to their delicacy and treat other peop people, yourself and other people, with loving kindness and com compassion. Uh, and I know what you're doing and your mother knew what you were doing and she trusted you in in your art and i trust you too yeah maybe i'll get you back after the show and see what you <laughs> say <laughs> but yes i i think that's that was an interesting point when henry said that to me because i hadn't thought of it like that i hadn't thought that he would think that I was trying to take the reins or take control of the narrative. Well, it is of a piece in this, in this whole discussion. If you're treating people instrumentally mm. as tools for your own ends without caring ab about them, then that is destructive. Uh, and it demeans you and it demeans the people that you're exploiting in that way as, as human resources or as mere objects for your art to, to toy with. But if you treat people with respect and, and you have a good intention in, in mind, then that's all right. Yeah. Yeah, which is sort of comes back to the privacy Yes. element again which is that that e we are now being the being made or making ourselves or allowing ourselves to be made into a product that that our stories and our lives and our perspectives and our uh, intentions and our subjective experience of the world is is seen only as whether it's useful or not for selling advertising Yes, we're, we're consumers, but we're not just consumers. We're also citizens with rights and, and freedoms and liberties. And we're not only citizens, we're humans. And all these have to be respected. We've been talking about information privacy, but in Australia, there's no protection 
for personal privacy in in our law. Really? Yes. People assume that there is a right to privacy. There's no such right in Australia. Well, there's no right to free speech in Australia either, is there? No. We there. There's an implied right to uh, freedom of political communication that the High Court found in our constitution, but but n- not as of right. And and indeed, we don't have a Bill of Rights. We we rely on the common law, where we have all our freedoms and, and liberties, except as circumscribed by, by the law. And that's how we enj- enjoy our rights in Australia. But there's no uh, tort, there's no uh, cause of action uh, where you can sue someone for invading your privacy in Australian law. That's very worrying. The Australian Law Reform Commission has recommended that there should be uh, such a right intru- introduced, but it hasn't been done yet. That's yeah. What do you think people should do? We started by saying that this issue of privacy is yeah, an important one for the kind of society we'll build in the twenty-first century, and the ki- it's not a fait accompli. The technology is not policy, it doesn't dictate to us. Uh, We have to develop policies that manage the technology, uh, these wonderful new communications technologies, so that they serve our interests and they serve the public interest. So if you're concerned about these issues, then uh, we as consumers, as citizens, as people, need to be active in protecting our own privacy and I- in promoting privacy in the public sphere. Well, I'm, I'm happy with that. If you're happy with that, is there anything else you wanted to say on, on the matter? Break a leg tonight. Break a leg tonight, you'll see it. Uh, where can people find you online or not at all? Uh, if, they, if they look on the interblog, I'm sure they'll find me. They're fine. Professor Michael Fraser, thank you for having tea with me. Thank you, Annie. Yeah.
Charlie do, more Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Sally Rifles on.